All right, good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and desire from our heart, Lord, just to sing praises in honor and glory and praise to who you are and for what you've done, Lord. Lord, you are so good and it's often hard to express how we feel and how appreciative we are. And so, Lord, we just, the best we can do is present ourselves to you, Lord, and say, here we are. And so we do that this morning. We say, here we are, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you administer to each and every heart that is here today. We have that confidence that your word will not return void or empty, that it will break up the fallow ground, that it is the lamp unto our feet. And so we appeal, Lord, to your word to transform us. We pray that our hearts would be ready to receive whatever you have to say to us, that you would impart your word by the power of your Holy Spirit in a transforming way. Lord, I pray that you administer to every need here. I pray, Lord, that we would not be the same when we leave I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would see you high and lifted up. I pray that you'd be the center here, Lord, that you would be the star, that you would be the one who would gather all of our attention, Lord, because you deserve it and you are worthy. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We offer this service to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Can you say hello to someone before you sit down, please? Okay, come on in, everybody. You may be seated. All right, come on in. You may be seated. All right, so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And while you're turning there, by the way, there's, uh, you can find Bibles underneath the seats if you need one. So a few announcements this morning. Today is the day of our Christmas party. So that's going to happen, Lord willing, at 4 p.m. tonight, this evening. And uh, come one, come all, and be ready to fellowship and Enjoy the things of the Lord, especially as we just celebrate the birth of Christ. This Wednesday night, we are continuing our way through a new book that we just started on Wednesday. And uh, we made it through three chapters, actually, of 2 Corinthians. So uh, this Wednesday, we're going to start at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to read ahead for that, and the plan is to go through uh, chapter 6, so we'll see how that goes with that. The 21st of this month, is a Thursday, we're going to have corporate prayer, and so we invite everyone out for that. It's going to be here in the sanctuary, and uh, we're going to be doing that every third Thursday of each month moving forward, and... Today we have uh, some special guests. We have 
within our congregation, Linda and Kathleen. Do you guys know Linda and Kathleen? Anybody? Linda and Kathleen. You got to get around a little bit more. So Linda and Kathleen have been attending here for a few months, and um, I come to find out that Linda's daughter and son-in-law are missionaries in southwest Uganda, and they are from a Calvary Chapel in South Oregon called Calvary Chapel Klamath Falls. And uh, they happen to be here this morning. So, you know, I think it's always good just to know sort of what drives a person to leave Southern Oregon. (laughs) I think that's pretty a beautiful place, right? Seems beautiful. And to go to Uganda. And uh, it's not because it's fun. It's not because the economy It's not because of the politics, it's because of the gospel. And the gospel is always that instrument which drives and motivates a person to do things that God calls them to do that are not about themselves, but it's about those in whom God wants to reach. So why don't you guys uh, come on up, Randy and Sandy. And I have a mic for you all. So welcome and thanks for coming. Thanks for having Thank us. You. So um, whoever wants to grab that. So the first thing I think would be good for everybody to know is what went on in your hearts that got you to Uganda from Southern Oregon. How does that work? I'll let my, my wife start with the, answering this question. It started with her. It started with me and ended with him. (laughs) So in 2007, I heard two missionaries speak, females that were um, missionaries to Africa. One was from Uganda, one was from Rwanda. And at that time, God was stirring in my heart for missions to Uganda. And I prayed for seven years before I went on my first short-term missions trip then, I went on a couple of more, and I really thought that was God's answer to my prayer for missions, that he would allow me to go on these short-term trips. But then, (laughs) you answer the rest. (laughs) Uh, And then, um, so the Lord was putting on our hearts, uh, just opened up the thought of going out and doing whatever he tells us to do, Mm -hmm. a calling so you're willing to do whatever he called right, you to Right, and we're do. not adventurers. I mean, we're homebodies. We, I hardly ever left Klamath County. Uh, you know, we're, we're raising a family. And, um, but the Lord started speaking, and we were, um, somehow the Lord opened up my mind, my heart, to, to do whatever he says to go, I would go. And uh, we went on a short-term mission trip in 2019 to Uganda, and that's where... Uh, to Uganda Kids Project in southwest Uganda. And the director of the project asked my wife and I to come over and start up the, the secondary school. Um, so I took that as a confirmation. And from that point, we next year we were preparing. We sold everything. And mm-hmm. we moved over there. So we're on our third year 
in Uganda. The, uh, the first year, COVID hit, so the, the students weren't there, but we were gave us time to uh, hire headmasters, uh, to disciple them, uh, set up policies for the school. And then the second year, we actually had our first class, and we limit the class to 30 students so we can focus on discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our main focus is to, um, you know, Uganda's, uh, well, Africa itself is a dark place. And um, these students bring with them many traditions that are far from biblical. You know, they, they still practice witch, witchcraft at times, um, traditions of men, mm-hmm. things of that nature. So there's a lot of strongholds. Mm-hmm. So from where I gather, so there's a, a willingness first in your heart and then there's a call. Did you wrestle with the call? Did you sort of go through any sort of like, I don't think God's really calling me or was it just very strong and you knew that you had you had to follow that calling? Yeah, I don't think we wrestled with it. At that point in time when we were asked to come over, mm-hmm. I think we had in our minds that uh, we were prepared mentally, whatever God would uh, tell us to go. I think the struggle really came with family. I think that was the biggest. Uh, my mom, wow. Um, you know, she she didn't take it well mm-hmm. uh, being over there. She's uh, fearful. Yeah. You know, fearful of the unknown. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot. So. And I would say probably the best piece of advice we've ever had was from our pastor um, that he says that you hold everything like this. Mm-hmm. Your family, your ministry, whatever it is, you hold it like this. And we were children's ministry directors for 10 years, and we were very comfortable just, you know, serving in that capacity. And But just like everything else, you have to hold it open-handed. You, That's really good. You have to allow God to give or to take whatever mm-hmm. in your life. So I think that's the best piece of advice we ever got was... And that even goes for right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, even though we're serving, we've been there for three years. If God wants to bring us back here, we're open to that. Mm-hmm. If he wants to send us someplace else, that's right. okay too. So, yeah, we really do hold our ministry open-handed. That's that's really good. And I think that is maybe the struggle that, that we have is the unwillingness to give up or to have an open hand, just to hold so tightly to the things of earth and I think that's maybe the first step is just being open to whatever God wants. I know that's what happened with me is just I got to a point where um, I heard a message from Isaiah 6 and the, the pastor was saying, you know, here I am, send me. And I really meant it. I meant, okay, Lord, what, I'm at the place where I just want to surrender all. And that's where his plan begins to really take shape in your life. Um, so can you tell us a little bit of specifics about your ministry and what you're doing over there? Yeah, we uh, oversee a high school. We were there to kind of, there's a Calvary Chapel of Shunga. There is a Calvary Chapel in the village where we're at um, on the project. And they already had a primary school established. So our main role was to go over and to start the high school and to oversee it. Um, so we... We try to, uh, we have a headmaster and a deputy head teacher. They run the school, but we, our role is to support them in running the school. And we also teach, <laughs> Randy teaches math, I teach English through the Abeka curriculum. We use the Abeka homeschool curriculum there because it's very Christ-centered and it's just very good. And so we do that in addition to the Uganda cr- 
curriculum. And then Randy does chapel every morning, and we do have many opportunities um, to go on outreaches. The school, we take kids on outreach frequently, and just to minister one-on-one to students, staff, just to counsel them in the Word of God. And that's one of our big goals next year is to take them through counseling God's way, the staff, so that they are equipped. Because when I was there in 2014 for the first time, the thing that really hit me, because we went into schools, and the schools there have open doors. Like, you can go in and share the gospel in public schools. And I thought, if you can reach a teacher's, in Uganda, you could reach the students. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our energy goes into just, you know, discipling teachers and ministering to them one-on-one. That's so, awesome. Yeah. And just to give a little background on Uganda, Uganda is, I'm going to put it in, this, in a size that I'm familiar with, state of Oregon. It's about the size of Uganda. The state of Oregon has four or five million people in it. Uh, Uganda has 46 million mm. And the average age is 16 years old because of all the crisis that's been happening in the last Mm -hmm. decades, AIDS and wars and such. Um, And and I was told the average salary is $1.50 a day. Mm. So we're dealing with poverty here, especially in the village. um, They're still living in mud huts. They don't have electricity. They have solar panels, like one light bulb in their house. And they have to fetch water either from the swamp or there are a few taps around. So we're, we're dealing with extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. And so. Gotcha. Well, uh, why don't we uh, just all lift them up in prayer? And uh, they have a table. Where's your table? Is it? It's is, oh, so they have a table out there if you want to stop by and ask more questions about their ministry. But the most important thing is that we're praying for them and joining with them in prayer as the body of Christ. And so let's just... Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing through this couple, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement to see that you work in our hearts to move us. You have a calling on our life, and it's important for us to be open and sensitive to that calling. You have a reason that you've put us on this planet, and so may we live for that reason and that purpose. I thank you for Randy and Sandy answering the call, and we pray now a special Uh, anointing upon them, strengthening, uh, uh, lifting them up, Lord, a comforting of their heart for the things that you have ahead for them. And I pray, Lord, that their ministry would be fruitful, that many people would come to know the Lord and walk in the truth that sets us free, Lord. We thank you for the gospel, and we pray that we, too, would be missionaries in our own town, Lord, and carry out the work of the gospel And so thank you, Lord. We praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank Thank you you. so much. Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, Linda and Catherine, can you guys stand up for so everybody can see you guys? Oh, Kathleen. So Kathleen's the sister and Linda's the mom. So there you go. So make sure you say hi to them as well. All right, well, praise the Lord for that. He's working everywhere, and He's calling us. Uh, So let's be open to whatever the Lord has for us. And so if you're uh, in the book of Galatians, I'd like to draw your attention to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And what we're doing this morning, we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at 
Jesus' coming, his incarnation, if you will, or God becoming man. We're going to take over the next three weeks, we're going to take three Old Testament stories and prophecies that point to this coming of Jesus. We're going to be talking about these promises of his coming and what Christmas means for a believer. It means that God promised to come and he did come and all that is involved in the coming of Jesus. If you are, you are a believer, that's the hope that we have. The hope I was listening to um, a speech by the mayor of New York uh, yesterday, I believe it was, and he's basically saying uh, there's no hope for us because of the crisis that they're having with the immigration, illegal immigration situation going. He said, there's no hope. The federal, I just got back from Washington, D.C., and there's no hope for us. He said, we're on our own. They're not going to help us. We're on our own now. And I thought, just that's a, the feeling of, of many people these days is that hopelessness and the exhaustion of all the different things that people count on and trust in. They're starting to evaporate. So the only thing that's left will be the true thing the real thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He did come to save. He will come again. And so we're going to look at uh, Galatians 3.16, and we're going to sort of unpack that. So let us read that together. Galatians 3.16, it says, Now Abraham and his seed were the promises made. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So there's your promises. He goes on to say, he does not say, and to the seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. So what does all that mean? It it means, as Paul in the book of Galatians is unpacking this, He's saying that all the promises of God are wrapped up in this seed. You might notice in your Bible that the word seed after Abraham is capitalized. That's because it's referring to God. Abraham, as we go back to the Old Testament and we begin to understand the reality of what this statement, of what's behind this statement, it's really to understand that in the Old Testament, there was a promise given to Abraham, the father of the Jews, that from Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I'd like to read that for you. It's in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. There's the calling to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those 
who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a promise given to Abraham who God called to leave a particular location, the land of the Chaldees, to leave and go to a land. So one of the promises that God gave to Abraham was a land. He was taking them, him to a land, and in that land he would develop a nation. That was the other promise, that through you, Abraham, a nation would arise. That was the Jews. And through the Jews and through the Jewish nation, God would give his commandments. He would give his temple. He would give his um, understanding of how to relate with God. He would give the understanding that there is just one God. He would give the understanding of the one true God. And even in the midst of land of multiple gods and pan, uh, pantheism and the worship of the earth and multiple gods and the Jews would rise up and say there's one God. And the God that's true, the one God that's true, we will reveal him to you through our nation. The promise then would eventually be that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And what that's referring to is that through Abraham's descendant, descendants, and then finally the one descendant, would come the Messiah, the Savior, the hope, the game changer, the one that would be the answer to everything that was lost. What was lost? For that, we need to go to the book of Genesis. So if you'll turn there to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. So we unpack Christmas and the promise of His coming. We have in our Bibles the more sure word. The Bible is a book of promises. It's a book that declares, as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 46.10, declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God has revealed himself by declaring things that would happen before they happened. The Old Testament is a book filled with events of God saying things that would happen and then fulfilling those things that would happen. The greatest of those events would be the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament has over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. These detailed prophecies of the coming of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament are given to us so that we would know that God's promises are true, that we would know His Word is true. They are the 
the, the true testimonies of God's word so that, as one scholar pointed out, that the prophecies of God are so many and so profound and so various and so specific that any man, he said, that rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact approved perhaps more abundantly than any other fact of the world. Just taking eight Old Testament prophecies out of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies would be similar to taking two feet of silver dollars and pouring them out in the whole state of Texas and marking one and shaking all of those silver dollars up and blindfolding someone and said, okay, find the silver dollar that was marked out of two feet of silver dollars that cover the state of Texas. That's the probability of Jesus not being true and not being the Messiah and not being real. That's only eight of the over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament given about Jesus. But did you know that Jesus' second coming, which we still await, has from six to eight times more prophecies about that than the first coming? And so his first coming and the surety of his first coming, the fulfillment of God's promises when he came the first time, tells us that his second coming is as sure as his first coming times six or eight. In other words, it is a statistical impossibility that Jesus is not coming again. And so to the mayor of New York, I want to tell you your hope is coming. He's Jesus. Your hope is not the federal government. Your hope is not the next election. Your hope is Jesus Christ. And so there's uh, these uh, amazing prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. You are in the book of Genesis, I hope. And as you're there, I want to, before we dive into that, I want to look at something the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 7.14. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. He said, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So the prophet Isaiah said, hey, there's all of these prophecies and promises that have been given to you. And these are signs so that you know if you were around in Jesus' day, you would know that Jesus is the Messiah. You would be able to look back and look at those 300 prophecies and say, yep, check all of those off and say, he's it. He is it. And the prophet Isaiah even said that the virgin birth would be something very significant about this Messiah. And that's what I want to look at this morning, particularly the the virgin birth of Jesus, the prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus, the sign that 
the virgin birth of Jesus gives to us today. And we find that in Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to pick up the account in verse 14. So I'll give you a little background. For many of you, it might be a reminder. For some of you, it might be new information. But in Genesis 3 itself, you pretty much are given a a worldview of how things really are in the world. If we read that chapter, we're able to understand so much about the world we live in, so much about us as people, so much about where our help comes from, so much about human nature, about God's nature. It basically settles so many problems. And if you want to start in Genesis 1 and read to Genesis 3 and through that chapter, you'll pretty much have all the questions of life answered, the big ones. The worldview that we are to have as correctly understanding the world that we live in. But in Genesis 3, after God created everything, and it was good, and then he brought man and woman, Adam and Eve, together. He put them in this beautiful place for the purpose of fellowshipping with God. That was the purpose. So God created man in his image, different than the animals, different than any other of God's creation. From the creation account, we find out that God always existed. He was not created. He always existed. He is eternal. That's one of the things that makes him God. So he always existed. And in in some point in time, he created all the material world, all that we see, touch, feel, smell, taste, all of those things. God created all of those things. But he created man different. He created man in his image. And he created man to enjoy fellowship with God. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the highest way for a human being to live is in fellowship with God. It's not in religious ceremonies or traditions. It's not in moral requirements. It's not in a codified system of moral righteousness, but it's simply to live in fellowship with God. If we miss that, we miss the purpose of why God created us. We are to, like Adam and Eve, being placed in this amazing environment that they were to walk with God in the coolness of the day, fellowship with God. Enjoy God. And that would be the height of the human existence. That'd be the greatest privilege. And that would be the purpose for our design. So not long after that is man is enjoying fellowship with God and also enjoying fellowship with one another. Then Satan came. Satan had fallen previous to, and we're not sure where in the Bible, but somewhere he had fallen after God created him. And this falling of Satan, Satan was created to be an angel of God. And then he desired to be God and to take God's place. And so God cursed him and he became Satan as we know Satan. 
Satan then went on the attack. What was his attack? It's interesting. His attack was to destroy man's fellowship with God. How did he do that? He did that by tempting man to not believe God. So he would come to Eve, and his temptation would be, did God really say that? She knew God said what he said, don't eat of that one tree. You can have everything else. It's all yours, but don't eat of that tree. Why was that there? Why was that one tree there? It's because God designed man to have a relationship with him that was a loving relationship, not a contractual relationship, not a robotic relationship, not a forced relationship. God didn't grab us by the collar and say, you're going to love me whether you like it or not. He said, here's how you will love me. You will do that by choice. You'll have everything except don't eat of that one tree. That one tree then was there so that man can choose to love God by obeying God. That's how we love God, by obeying God. That's how we show our love for him, by loving him. And Satan always comes and whispers in our ear, did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Is that the right interpretation? And so we have a choice, and that choice then was taken by Eve, and she did eat of the fruit of the tree, and at that point, sin entered into the world. That meant that as sin entered into the world, that man was separated from God. He was separated from one another. There would be striving. There would be animosity. There would be war. It wasn't long after that where the first murder occurred in the Bible. And ever since, mankind has struggled for peace and harmony, yet... The Bible says that God has written eternity in our hearts. Because we are made in God's image, we crave for the things of God. We crave for satisfaction. We crave for love. We crave to be in a relationship with God, which many people mistake for some vague higher being or force, or they worship the creation versus the creator. But Generally, wherever you go in the whole world, every society and culture, they will worship. They will worship something they would deem higher than themselves. It's because God has written eternity in our hearts and we are made in God's image. So man knows instinctually that there is something beyond what we can see, touch, taste, feel, and hear. From that moment, man ran from God, hid from God, hid from each other. Chaos ensued and death ensued. God didn't make death to be part of his creation. But when man exercised his own will against God, 
by eating the fruit from the tree, then death entered. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So rebellion against God, disobedience against God, that's sin, and it's always death. It'll kill the things of God in our life. And then we die physically. So we die physically. We see death all around us, whether it's in uh, nature or the animals or the trees or the flowers, the plants. We see the, all these things going on. It's all a continual reminder that the, in this world, it's temporary. Death has entered in and we have a problem. So with all of that, imagine trying to fix the world's problems with the federal government or with some sort of worldly solution. Is that even possible? No, because that's not the problem. The problem is sin. Sin is the whole problem. Everything was good before sin entered. And then sin, sin entered and then all the problems. So imagine trying to fix sin. Have you ever tried to fix sin? Have you ever tried to not sin? Never think a sinful thought? Never say a sinful word? Never do a sinful act? It's impossible. And God knew that. So that's where we pick up this amazing prophecy from Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of our Bible. So look at verse 14. In Genesis 3, it says, So, The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, what? Tempted man to disobey God. That's what Satan does. There is no other source than Satan that causes one to disobey God. It's Satan. It's satanic. Our disobedience is because Satan tempts us away from God and away from obedience to God. So because of this, the Lord says to to the serpent, you are cursed more than the cattle. In other words, all creation is cursed now. More than every beast in the field, God is saying you are cursed. And because Satan used a serpent, Seems like a snake, but whatever it was, some kind of creation that Satan used, God cursed that particular animal as well. He says, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Sounds like a snake. Snakes are not generally the animals that you see on birthday cards or get well cards, it's usually a puppy or a cat or something like that. But snakes have a particular creepiness to them. Usually people are sort of repelled by snakes. Not everybody, but but God is saying, hey, look, because you caused this, your life's existence, you're going to just be slithering around in the dirt. That's where you belong. Imagine these People, maybe you are doing this and maybe you have done this, but you celebrate the things of Satan. You know, people do that. 
we just had Halloween. You know, I went and saw some houses as I'm driving home and looked like they're really celebrating some evil things. Didn't look like the garden pre-fall, looked like the garden after the fall, and it looked like people actually celebrate evil. And we know that's a fact. People celebrate evil. And when I see those type of things, I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he's on the cross, you know not what you do. You may think it's funny. You may think it's entertaining, but you really don't know what you're doing. This is not something to celebrate. You're celebrating a creature that got cursed and lives its life slithering around the ground in the dirt. That's where the things of Satan belong. And so here, here is the prophecy. Here is the promise. Immediately after the fall, it says, And I, God, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity means war. It means conflict. It means hate. God is saying as a result of the fall, there will be hatred that Satan will have and the followers of evil for the people of God. There will be animosity. There will be, in cases, many cases, violence. This explains a lot. This explains why throughout Christianity there's been so much hatred for God's people. This also explains why throughout the Bible we see instances of Satan trying to kill the Jewish race. All the way back to Pharaoh recognizing God's blessing on the women of Israel, and especially in their fruitfulness and childbearing, he tried to wipe out all the Jewish kids. Later in the book of Esther, we see a man named Haman trying to wipe out all the Jews. Later in Jesus' time, we see Haman, or I'm sorry, Herod, afraid of the Jews and the king of the Jews. He wanted to wipe out and did wipe out kids under two years old that were Jewish. The reason? Satan is behind the anti-Semitism. Satan is behind the hatred of the Jews and Satan is behind the, the hatred of Christians. Before Jesus came, Satan was working to kill off the Jews because of the prophecy that was given and the covenant that God had with Abraham that through Abraham's seed that all the nations would be blessed. And so Satan went to try to kill off Abraham's seed. One of the testimonies that we have of the faithfulness of God and the truthfulness of God is the fact that the Jewish people have survived all these years and continue to be a nation when all of their contemporaries of that time are no longer a people anymore. And God's people will always be God's people and never not be God's people. Why? How do we know that? The Bible tells us that. 
The fact that Israel is a nation is something that we would know from reading the Bible, especially Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, talks about a Messiah coming. Well, he had have to come to a place where the Jews had a land, and then he would eventually be cut off from the land, and then he would be restored back into the land. This is all a historical narrative of how God worked through the nation of Israel, but before he actually did all those things, it was a prophetical narrative of how God would work. You start to put these things together, and your, your mind is just blown away about how good God is to show us and demonstrate that he is true, that he is right, that we can count on them, and we can put all our hope in him. So in verse 15, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put enmity, hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, which is mankind, between your seed, Satan, that's your offspring, Satan, and her, notice that's capitalized, probably in your Bible, her seed, that's referring to now to the Messiah coming. That's an interesting way to describe an offspring that would eventually come. This seed that would come, we are being told the seed from Eve. The seed from the woman. Now, I don't know how far you got in school, but if, you got, if you're a little older and you got past fifth or sixth grade, you would have learned about the seed of a man and the egg of a woman. Now, if you're in kindergarten, you're probably learning those things. But <laughs> kind of funny, not really funny, but sad. The point is, something should strike you and me. When he says the seed of a woman, something will happen from a seed of a woman. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we're learning about a miracle that's going to come. It goes back to the Isaiah prophecy about a virgin having the Messiah, a conception of a pre-existing God and how that pre-existing God was going to enter into the world. And Isaiah said, this is going to be a sign. A virgin shall bear a child. She will get pregnant without having proper relationships with a man that, a man that creates a child. In Genesis 3, we are learning that God has a plan for mankind, that all is not lost, that God sees the need and he provides the answer and he does it in a way where there will be a demonstration and sort of a, a hint, a preview, like, look, this is how you know. If someone just comes and says, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, people do that now. 
A lot of mentally ill people, actually, they, they say that they're Jesus or say that they're God. How do you know? Well, there's, there's, it's just going to happen one time. It's going to be a, a, a one event, and it's going to be miraculous. And there's over 300 prophecies that are going to explain where, when, how, why, all the details of, of that. But here's one thing I want you to know. There's going to be a sign, and the, the sign is a lady's going to get pregnant without a man. And this will be the sign. And all the way right after the fall of men, this is being put out there. Why? The fall was devastating. But there's always hope in the devastation in God. That's the point. There's always hope no matter how bad the devastation. There's not anything more devastating than the fall. Everything that happens now that's devastating is because of the fall. That is the source of all of the tragedy, heartbreak, everything that we see in this world is because of the fall. But the hope is never in anything other than Jesus Christ, who is greater than all the devastation. And so he tells Eve, look, I'm sorry, he tells Satan, look, there's going to be this enmity between your seed and her seed. So now he's pointing to one particular capital S seed that a woman never has. And here here it is. Here's the answer. Here's what God is going to do. He shall bruise your head. Who's he? Who, who is the capital S seed? There is going to come one who later Abraham prom, was promised that it would be through his people that this seed from Abraham would come from a woman who never had relations with the man. That seed would fix what happened in the garden. And I like how that information's given to her and Adam. Imagine the devastation that they would have felt. And God says, I got you. You messed up. You're sinful. But my love and my plan is greater than your mess up. It's greater than your disobedience. It's greater than your sin. Do you see? There's only one solution. That's the issue. There's no other fix. There's no other hope. There's no other plan that God has. There's not multiple choice things going on. It's true or false. And God says, hey, look. You blew it, but here, here's what's going to happen. The seed, the seed of a woman, he's going to come. And here's what he's going to do. He even tells us what he's going to do. He's going, going to bruise Satan's head. What does that mean? That means that the seed will come and do something to destroy the authority and dominion and power 
that Satan has over man. That's why it's referring to the head. The head refers to power and authority and dominion. The seed of a woman is going to come and he's going to bruise Satan's head. In other words, at the cross. This is alluding to the cross. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelicum. The first gospel. The first good news. The first good news is right here in Genesis 3, 15. And in the midst of all this devastation, God is saying the Messiah will come and he's going to do something that's going to break the power and dominion of Satan over mankind. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. How was that going to happen? He tells us. And you, Satan, see what it says? You shall bruise his heel. So it would be through Satan's attempt to harm and kill the Messiah that would actually bring about the freedom from the authority and dominion of Satan over mankind. This is the cross. This is the promise of his coming. This is the encouragement to all of us this morning that no matter how things look or how things are, that we know God wins. We know Satan's authority has been destroyed at the cross. And just to tie this all together, if you will flip to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we'll see how this prophecy was fulfilled. Matthew chapter 1, 18. says, now the birth of Christ. So think about that. What was said in the garden. Now the time had come. Genesis 3.15 now was coming to fruition. When this statement was made in Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. That is the seed. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed is the beginning of a marriage in the Jewish culture in which two people make a contractual agreement to be married, but they're separate for a year prior to their actually coming together physically in that union. The Jewish custom. So after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. It was the Holy Spirit brought about this miracle in the womb of Mary. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, 
was minded to put her away secretly. In other words, Joseph knew what the ramifications were for someone getting pregnant before marriage. He had figured that some other man had gotten her pregnant, and so he didn't want to embarrass her and expose her to public shame, but also knew that what she did in their culture was worthy of the death penalty. But he wanted to deal with this to protect her dignity. That shows you the man that Joseph was. So in verse 20, it says, but while he thought about these things, so you can imagine him thinking like, what should I do? Where should I go? Should I put her out to public display? Should she be stoned? Imagine his own personal feelings of how he might have felt hurt. How could she do this to me? How? But as, he, as he's thinking about all of these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, marry your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now look at verse 22. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled. That's the key word, that it might be fulfilled. What we read in the New Testament is a testament of God fulfilling what he said he was going to do in the Old Testament. It wasn't random things coming out of a hat, out of nowhere, from some random person. These were all things told about, explained in detail how that they would happen. And that's why it is said, this was done that it might be fulfilled. What happened when Mary got pregnant was a fulfillment of what we have seen here this morning. And it says it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so there it is. The promise of God fulfilled perfectly and to the detail. This should give us hope. And in this Christmas season, I believe this requires action. I read a quote from a man named Halford Lukuk, who was a professor of homiletics at Yale Divinity School in the 1900s. He said, we can be so charmed with the study or the story of a baby that we grow sentimental about it, but do not ask that we do anything about it. The story demands action and a vital change in the way of our thinking. And that's what I hope to get to through this message today. That we will take all that's going on in regards to the Christmas season and really get to the heart of the truth of the reality that a Savior was born. 
And that Savior that was born demonstrates how much God loves us. That in the immediate dust of the worst thing that happened to mankind, Jesus was there saying, I am greater. And for us here today, Jesus is saying, look at my coming. I am greater. And not only that, I am coming again, but this time it's going to be different. Before I came to suffer, to save. Next time I'm coming to conquer and restore. So he is coming back. And we know that because his word is true and his promises have been demonstrated. And so God would say to us, dearly beloved, take heart. Take heart. I am coming again. Put your hope in me and me alone. Man will never be able to solve the problems. They'll never be able to fix the earth. Jesus is our hope. Put everything in to Jesus Christ and your hope in him. That is the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who is not a Christian, who has never received the free offer, the invitation to be washed of their sins. I pray for anybody here this morning that if they were to die today, they would be separated from God in hell forever. And now, Lord, you are inviting them to receive your forgiveness to receive the finished work on the cross. And so if you're here today, make it definitive and make it clear. Cry out to Jesus. Ask him to save you, to have mercy on your soul. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The Bible says that we are all sinners, meaning because of what we looked at today in Genesis, that we are all separated from God and we will die in our sins unless we receive the forgiveness of our sins from Jesus Christ. So do that now. Don't wait. And for all of us here, may this Christmas be different. Lord, I pray that that this Christmas our hope would be completely anchored in you. We wouldn't look for any other escape, any other lifeboat, any other fix, but whatever goes on in our lives and in the world, that you would be our anchor of hope. And so let's all stand We're going to have our prayer team up front. If anybody would like prayer this morning, as we sing this last song, just feel free to come on up and ask for that prayer.
Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Let's worship the Lord and Merry Christmas to all of you.